Cold Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit simplecast.com. Hey, Hey! welcome to Foreign National on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan in Washington, D.C. I'm one of your two hosts, Eric Brenner-Yang, with my lovely number one, Pixada Neck. Hello there. And today my guest is, please introduce yourself. Lou Duong. Lou Duong. If you are a restaurateur in this city and Lou is the number one customer at least my number one customer thanks man. so i'm so happy to have Which is him all here. that matters at the end of the day right <laughs> yes. uh lua is the kind of friend where you know he's really important but you don't even know what he really does yeah so kind of like chandler bing on friends yeah so we, we always get asked that question yeah so we invited lou to the, to be our guest on um the show today just because um i've known you for seven years or so now and i have no idea what you do for a living so that is why you're here because today we're going to find out um, but also just a li- lo- let's tell you a little bit what our show is about so foreign national the show obviously um one represents the name foreign national right mm. the idea that you have uh you are now a resident or a citizen or a participant of a culture that's not originally yours and you're and you're living in a in a different land and then uh, from there, it's also the idea of um, the Four Nationals kind of a food show, but not at the same time. Not necessarily like how the ingredients have made it to this country and how that's transformed Cambodian food or Chinese food or Japanese food or anything like that. It's more about the personal stories of how um, um, these cultures have been able to thrive and be created here in the United States. Um, and obviously you have a rich background in that with your family. So Sweet. I think that's a, that's a little bit of um, why we think you would be a great guest. You know a lot about the D.C. food scene. Mm. You're, you're a big part of my personal community. Um, and I think you kind your personal story, even though we're saying we don't know what it is, <laughs> we know a little, enough to know that I think it, it um, translates well to what we're doing here. Yeah. yeah, I think a little bit of your background that we do know a little bit of that isn't, you know, just catching up with you, seeing what's new with your cute little dog and, you know, Maureen and, you know, just talking about, you know, our other, you know, dear friends. Um, I think I think we all relate to being, you know, second generation Asian Americans. Sure. And, um, you know, you are able to relate with what we do mm-hmm. and are, you know, great at sharing that conversation with other people. So, you know, knowing that, you know, you can probably get into a little bit more about your family background. Yeah. And, and so I'll let you kind of take that off. But cool. I thought that's why you'd be kind of great. Thank you. Thanks for having to me, guys. Sit and chat My us. first question is, what do you do for a living? <laughs> When Seda, when Seda messaged me that question, I'm like, I always get this question. I don't know why. I think maybe because I'm better at asking questions than answering questions. That's just my personality. I love to always find out more about other people. Um, so the gist of it is uh, I work uh, in philanthropy, and specifically I work for uh, the Fund2 Foundation UNCF uh, STEM program. And in a nutshell, that's a collaboration between... Um, billionaire uh, philanthropist uh, Robert F. Smith. Um, he is CEO and chairman of Vista Equity Partners. He's in private equity. He's based out in Austin. 
uh, in a collaboration with um, Dr. Michael Lomax of uh, UNCF and uh, my specific boss also, Dr. Chad Womack and uh, Larry Griffith. And so what these great minds came together and did was they created a program that uh, plugged a gap uh, within the, the tech diversity space. So you have this massive transformational um, change in technology where you have new companies being built every day at a rapid transformational pace, but you have minority students, and in our case, specifically we're focused on African-American um, male, female computer science students who don't have equitable opportunity and access to get to places like Silicon Valley, right? Um, so two buckets of work that I do is we manage a $48 million uh, scholarship program, and I'm head of program comms for that, uh, which provides college scholarships to uh, 100 of the nation's top black male-female college-bound high school seniors that allow them to go to college and pursue a STEM degree, and STEM is science, technology, engineering, mathematics. They can go to any school in the country. We've lots that go to Ivy Leagues, state schools, and private um, HBCUs. And what we do around that is Additionally, besides just giving them a financial check, there's very intense wraparound support services. So, Eric, imagine if you're one of my scholars. I'll give you a real example of, of a situation where we had a scholar who last, a year ago, in, in August, was attending uh, a very prestigious New England school. And this is right after, uh, this is right before the election, so politics were at, at an all-time high and the fever was an all-time high. She's a young black girl walking with her friend who's also black as well, and she's walking around campus, and she had a group of, of young Caucasian men run after her, and basically call, you know, we're calling her the N-word and harassing her, um, and she broke down. This was her second day on campus. She gave our, our office a, a call and was in a complete shamble, and you have situations like this where you have minority students who are in a classroom of 500, 400 in a large class, and they may be only one of a handful that look like themselves, right? And so additionally, when I say wraparound support services, we have a first-of-a-kind service that we offer for any national scholarship where they have access to math and science tutoring, 100% at cost, no cost to them, I'm sorry, from the comfort of their own dorm room that we pay for 100%. So if Eric's not comfortable going to the academic support center, because he's the only, in this case, black kid in a room full of white people. He gets free tutoring in his class, uh, in his dorm room, uh, for as many sessions as, he, as he's needed. And we have kids from Harvard to smaller schools uh, take advantage of this opportunity. Um, and that's one bucket of work that I do. Another bucket is, is basically working with Silicon Valley companies, including Google, Adobe, Salesforce, um, Uber, working with Valley companies that recognize that they have a diversity problem within their, within their company. And what we do there is we pipeline top black computer science um, students who are graduating, both male and female, and we create these partnerships and relationships that allow them to have that access to Silicon Valley. Um, so we're plugging, plugging the gap that way. So that's the gist of, of what I do. It's, not, it's, a, it's always a mouthful, which is probably why I don't talk about it very often with with people no that's 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 actually really amazing i mean so. like i think you're naturally just a very 
you're so outgoing but very internal at the same time mm. and, I, and I think it's because you don't want um, I don't know I don't know why you are but I mean that's really amazing it's after knowing you for so long Thanks, it's man. nice to have some clarity on that yeah. and, and I think obviously what you do is really important I think it speaks to some of the, you know the, the, the stories that we're trying to tell here about changing and building communities mm-hmm. um, through um, personal engagement whether it's for food or through you through education um, so yeah no it's really great to actually know a little bit about what now you, you know Seda no, now we now know, I know. Now I'm like know. okay yeah no big deal I guess what you do <laughs> but, um, I just thought you the, had a, the, the I just, just lived in a beautiful yeah. apartment and you're upside you do down poses and, and, you know, just, <laughs> just do just yoga hang out with Maureen yeah, yeah travel. play with my English bulldog you got right, your travel right. hacks like, um, no he does something important I don't know what it is that he can does can I say one last thing too Seda let me just I want to give you I go to sleep very well at night I go to sleep very well at night because I really believe in the work that we do um, and the the small part that I have in this and let me give you an example of just the breadth of some of the kids that that we work with and that we support in our program we have a student who is at Harvard um, she is Nigerian um, I believe she was born here uh, and at the age of 18 she was recognized by Forbes magazine she's a 30 under 30 and you tell me what you're doing when you're 18, because I wasn't doing this. <laughs> Through her research, she was able to isolate a specific chemical element that when applied to the base of an oil rig in the deep ocean can prevent leakage. So you have companies like Exxon and Snook. I mean, they're all flipping out at this. And she ended up, I think, either winning or was a, was a, uh, a finalist for um, a very prestigious national science award. Um, but these are some of these are some of the students that we support, and believe it or not, oftentimes uh, your academics and your hard work, as we know in this world, uh, doesn't deservedly get you to where you want to be. And lots of that is facilitated by relationships, and we can talk about that later. And so that's where we play a huge part as well, because we have that scale and we have that reach where we work with major companies and laboratories and organizations within the STEM field and within the tech field. So we're able to act as, you know, transactional um, facilitators between these amazing scholars and these companies who are spending millions of dollars and unfortunately oftentimes going about the right way trying to identify these kids. And sometimes they're going to the wrong places or they're just not speaking to the right folk. Right, and, and kind of like what you said, even the all-around support that you provide on campus, everything from, I, I don't think some people realize how important it is that you don't just, you know, open up an opportunity to say, hey, we, you know what, we need to diversify, the, you know, the, the, exactly. the, the, uh, the amount of students that we, we kind of get at this university. But I don't think people realize the other, you know, obstacles that yep. students of color yep. um, and minorities face when they're in an environment like that. Exactly. So to be able to provide, you know, what you say, you know, if you want tutoring in your room, you get exactly. it to your room. Like those small, what may seem really insignificant, makes such a bigger impact uh, on the whole and the success and, and uh, the sustainability of, um, you know, the real diversity. Um, we, so, I mean, what you do is really special and it's really nice to actually know that we I mean, say that we had, we have, uh, this past year, we awarded a young, a young female. She's a freshman right now. And she, Eric, lived with her mom for her last two years of high school in, in, their, in her mom's car. Um, and what's crazy about all of this is I know that in four years when she graduates, 
with, um, with that computer science degree, I'm fully cognizant that the, the generational line of poverty ends with her. When she comes out, she's gonna be making 80, 85,000, no problem at all. And that cycle of poverty has ended with her. And that's what's so powerful um, about this. And I don't think very many people actually sit back and reflect about the power of, of education, the power of just being nice and introducing someone to a person that could help them. Yeah, I mean, I think a, a lot of what your story is about is, is access, right? Yes. And, um, you know, my, my, my wife is always very um, uh, conscious and aware of the, the Cambodian diaspora in the United States. And, you, you know, your family is part of the Vietnamese mm-hmm. diaspora here in the United States. And um, especially these, you know, these, these Southeast Asian communities when they um, came to the U.S. were, you know, largely integrated into black communities and have had to, um, you know, had similar um, struggles and relations and um, stories, right? But um, just a different sense of trajectory. But at some point in time from, from your family's story to where you are today, there had to have been someone in your life that helped you get this access Absolutely. Right. To get to where you are today. Mm-hmm. And, and that's part of your your story that you've kind of carried, you know, into into the work that you did, because you wouldn't be here today. Absolutely not. If you look back at where, you know, where your life story is coming from, if it wasn't someone doing the same for you. So maybe we can now we can tie in a sure. little bit to kind of, you know, your personal background, your family's background, yeah. especially here in the U.S. Sure. So, uh my my parents have a really cool story. My dad in in Vietnam was actually my mother's French tutor uh, when she was in high school, and at that time, my dad is a family. His family has twelve brothers and sisters. Uh, only the top men were afforded the opportunity to go abroad and study at a university, um, and this was right before uh, the Vietnam War um, broke out. But uh, my grandfather was able to send uh, his top three boys, eldest boys, to France to study. Um, my dad went over to France. He got a degree in chemical textiles. And uh, he then corresponded with my mom over a number of years by letter. I mean, it's, it's a true love story. It's interesting. And... Uh, was my, it in French or Vietnamese? Hmm, yeah, good that's a good question. Probably Vietnamese. <laughs> Uh, so then my, my dad eventually um, decided that he wanted to pursue his dream of opening up a restaurant. And by that time uh, that happened, my mom had actually moved to America. And her older brother, Seda, was, I believe, like a, an executive at um, Voice of America. And my mom was working at the embassy at that time. And my dad was able to come over. And he came over literally with like $12 in his in his pocket. And it is a story of, of, in a sense, rags to riches, where he started off as a dishwasher and worked his way up. One of the stories that I was told by my dad was um, he, worked, he worked in a one-man hamburger shop, and there was a man who came every day uh, and saw my dad working so hard where he gave him his phone number and said, if you ever end up opening a restaurant, I will invest in you, simply due to his work ethic. Long story short, uh, my dad ends up opening um, the first, I believe, uh, the first Vietnamese restaurant uh, in all of 
DC, Maryland, Virginia. And in its final stage, it was Vietnam Georgetown Restaurant at, I, I still know the address, 2934 M Street. I think it's now a Cajun, all-you-can-eat Alaskan crab leg restaurant. But anyways, it had a beautiful patio in the back. And um, it was, from the moment it opened, Eric, it was the restaurant to go at. I still remember going there as a child, and I basically grew up running around the kitchen and the dining room, just like your kids are probably doing with your restaurants right now. And interestingly enough, this was the roaring 80s, right? So there's lots of wealth being generated. The Republicans were very much in power. It was the Reagan era. And uh, you had folks in the Reagan administration from his chief of staff to, I believe, Dick Cheney and other people being whisked in and out of the kitchen. And because of the proximity to the Four Seasons Hotel, which I believe is only a block or two away, we had Madonna, Julie Roberts, Michael Jackson. I mean, you had the who's who of celebrity come in and they would cart my, my older brother out at that time. I was too young, but he'd get photographs and autographs and whatnot. Um, and my dad built a future um, through that one very restaurant. And like you both, um, my parents played a supporting role that complemented each other. And my mom pursued her passions um, in many ways, one of which was running back and forth and working at the embassy. The interesting about the embassy was that when the North invaded the South, we cut off relations and acknowledgement of that embassy. There's a photo of my mom, I believe on the front page of the Washington Post, if my memory serves me right. Um, it's her, of her handing over the key to the ambassador after the gate was officially shut and we cut off all ties. Um, so my parents lived through a lot and thankfully they're, they're a bit older now, but uh, they're healthy and uh, through that experience, my brother and I have seen just the power of perseverance and uh, what hard work can get you. So um, what year did your father open this restaurant, roughly? So uh, the 2934 location What's opened it? up, I want to say, in 1976 or 77. Okay. But he had two other restaurants beforehand mm-hmm. in different locations. Both Vietnamese? Yes. Okay. Always Vietnamese. In D.C.? In D.C. Okay, so we, he, like sometime mid-70s? Mid, sometimes mid-70s. And uh, I can share with you that my dad was smart. Um, my dad is a, he is a people person very much like I am. Uh, his, he, can, he can cook a great French meal, but he can't cook a Vietnamese meal worth anything. That's <laughs> when my mom comes into play. But my, what my dad did, he hired the, the, uh, the executive chef from the embassy that my mom worked at, and he developed the menu. So that's how that worked out. And um, my dad was always uh, running the show um, in the front of the house, but hu- always humble enough to never announce himself to the public as the owner. He was always simply just the manager on site. That's me, the busser. The busser. Like, you work here? I'm like, yeah, I'm just the busser. Can, or you need some water? <laughs> or, or can I talk to your manager, please? Yeah, yeah, let me go get him. Sir, he's talking to, you're or, talking too or, much. Or, Where's um, your manager? I, I know the owner. Can I, can I please see the owner? Yeah. Look at that. That's always fun. Um, so, you know, so we're talking mid-70s. Your father is kind of the forefront of Vietnamese food, essentially, in this mm-hmm. area. And um, I'm sure it was, it, was very, it was obviously a very new cuisine. And, and, you know, 40 years later, you know, look how popular yeah. Vietnamese food is yeah. in, um, in the United States. But just yeah. in this area, it's a big part of the DMV's huge food identity huge. right and um the vietnamese play a very powerful role in politics in northern virginia um and 
I mean, we went to a rally where we had candidates specifically speaking to the Vietnamese community, the Vietnamese community, Republican specifically, <laughs> because their vote is so yeah. powerful in, in, in the region. And I think that's, that's just so, that's just, that's the foreign national story, right? Yep. Like your, your, uh, your father coming to this country, opening the first Vietnamese restaurant in Washington, DC, and then, you know, and sponsoring Eric, his brothers and sisters to come over. Right. And they all worked much like, I'm sure we all have stories like this in the kitchen, they all had kids who ended up working in the restaurant as well, and so it propagated this entire... So, you know, so what we really should be doing is we should, we should do a story, mm, right? Yeah. And you know how, what's the famous Jean-Louis Papillon? He's the mm-hmm. famous French chef. Yes. Okay, so there's this, there's this French chef here in Washington, D.C., and, and you put Jean-Louis on the top, and then they always do these trees where then it's like Michelle Richard, Jeff Boob, and all these guys going down of all these guys that have worked for each other. We need to do one. Almost for, like a family tree. Almost a family tree of restaurants and chefs that all started from this <laughs> one French chef at the Watergate. We need to do that with your we dad. Gotta do it. Let's because do I it. bet your dad started here at the top and then sponsored this person who sponsored this person that are all these different restaurants yeah. that people over the last 40 years probably know a lot about. But, you know, like me and like your father. You know, it's about the work. It's not about the person doing the work. It's all these guys that have built these amazing, um, have been staples. I'm sure your father lended people money, sponsored people. You know, probably wife's like, please don't buy that guy another bed or a car. Like, don't loan him a thousand bucks. You have kids. Totally. That's a tough one because it's why I love him. But the other part is like, okay, well, what about us? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, you know, all these stories about how these people, you know, are forefronts of this of this community and, and where it is 50 years now, but no one knows them. So what yeah. what is your father's name? Uh, An Duong, A N. Okay. An Kwong Duong. We also we all share the same middle name in our entire uh, male family tree. Oh, Q U A N G Kwong. It's, isn't it? I don't know if you you know just hearing you saying your father's name. Is it an Asian thing where we don't like to say our parents' name? Uh. Y- yeah, that's interesting that you, you say that. You're just like, yeah, dad. Dad. Yeah. I come Papa. Or maybe it's just French, a, so maybe it's just the people thing, but I yeah. find, you know, sometimes other people are much more comfortable going, hey, this is my mom, Samantha. Samantha. <laughs> like, oh, this is just my mom. This is Julie. Yeah. Say hi, Julie. This Hi. is Ma. You know. <laughs> so, so if you're comfortable, because, you know, we're going to have to have a promo picture yeah. for, the, for the episode. For sure. You know, one of you and your father and just have a picture of your dad. Yeah. Probably. Uh, I think like... Uh, one either maybe two like a new one and an old one i don't know but i think it would be great you know we're, we're t- telling this story about yourself and also yeah. your um your family and so how so obviously they built this world for you mm. um gives you access uh, you know i know they they do this so you guys can have a great education yeah. and then from education you know where was the um where was that big step where lou became lou uh so I think I have a cool story, and I'll share it with you. Oh, it's about relationships, right? So um, I, went to, I went to VCU. I studied political science. And around my, my senior year, um, I was talking to a cousin of mine about internships, right? We all have that story. And my cousin, um, I should say cousin-in-law, he's, he's married to my, my cousin. We'll call him Cousin Bob. Um, because Bob asked me what I wanted to do, and I said I would love to 
work on Capitol Hill. At that time, I thought I wanted to work in some form or fashion on the Hill in politics. Um, so I said, you know, in, I'd love to intern with a, a congressperson or, or a senator. Um, and he goes, you know, I think I can help you. And he goes, he, goes, he writes down these, these two names. And he goes, give, give these people a call um, and let them know that, that uh, you know, you're my, you're my cousin. And the first name was Paul Begala. Um, I'm not sure if you all know, but Paul Begala uh, is most known for uh, being the partner with James Carville as the, the campaign strategist for Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. Right? Second name was, was John Podesta. John Podesta was President Clinton's chief of staff. And um, he's went on to do amazing things, opened up the Center for American Progress and worked very closely with the, the Clinton-Obama campaigns. Uh, so I called, I called both of them, and uh, I, you know, Ms., uh, Mr. Podesta at that time was, it was teaching and incubating at Georgetown uh, University. He was setting up the framework to create his think tank, Center for American Progress. And I remember this so clearly. I walk into his office, and I sit down. I'm very aware of who I'm talking to, so I'm, I'm, I'm nervous as hell. And he looks at me and he points to the chair and says, have a seat. Really nice man, but he's very, very serious. Because I want you to know, and I leaned in closer, he goes, I want you to know, you would not be here if it wasn't for Bob. So you need to thank Bob. Meaning, you know, like, yeah, I wouldn't be taking the time out to see you unless Cousin Bob vouched for you. And I was like, thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much. And he goes, tell me what you want. I was like, well, you know, I'm, I, I'm really hoping to find an internship. Uh, well, who do, you want, who do you want to intern for? And He's like grilling you. I, I know, like, this one's really intense just, for a young... Yeah, like, I was like, <laughs> I don't know, 19 or so, 20? And so I, I throw off these names, and I say, you know, at the time, I say Lieberman, da-da-da-da-da. And uh, on a whim, I, I didn't think in a million years it would happen, but I said, I said Senator Clinton at the very end. He looks at me, and... He swivels in his chair, and if you can imagine, he has this large mahogany desk, and he flips around, he has this big, ta- big desk where his computer's at, and he has these massive Rolodexes, and I think there's like three or four of them. And he's just flipping, flipping his Rolodexes, and he's like, call so-and-so, Chief Staff Learman, call so-and-so, da-da-da-da. And finally he goes, call uh, so-and-so, Chief of Staff, uh, Hillary. And I was like, oh, man. I was like, wow. I was like, all right. Thank you, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> so I end up at that time, because this is how we did it back then. This is so old school. We, I fax over my information to the chief of staff of Senator Clinton. And I kid you not. Um, can we curse on this up by any chance or no? Whatever can we curse on are this? We G, are we G-rated? Absolutely. Oh, hey. Right, cool. little button there. So I shit you not. Like <laughs> a few days later, uh, I get a, a phone call um, from Senator Clinton's office. And I apply, and I get that internship. I show up at my first day interning for Senator Clinton in her, in her Senate office. I'm one of like 40, 40 kids, right? 40 kids my age. I think we're all seniors in college. And we're doing introductions, Eric. And, I, and everyone is going around the table, and people are like, Yale, Stanford, Harvard, you know, Wellesley, Wellesley, where you know, Senator Clinton went, Wellesley, Wellesley, Harvard, Dartmouth, da-da-da. 
Hi. Face uh, you. Visa, uh, Virginia Commonwealth University. Yeah. And the entire room just looked at me like, who is this kid? Like, is what? Like, is that a local community? Co- like, what is They're this? Like, uh, anything else? <laughs> is, that a, is that a club? Um, so, yeah. So, I was very aware of, of my situation. I was very aware of, of, of the room that I was in with. But here's what's so interesting. Because of Cousin Bob, um, I, I listed my preference in terms of office as communications. And this is really where I kind of got my start. All the other interns wanted, they wanted to work in foreign policy and much more sexier things. Um, so 30, 38 of the 40 interns got moved to a different floor. I was put into Senator Clinton's, literally her personal office. And you can imagine her Senate office consisted of three large rooms. She had the furthest left room. The middle room was for her chief of staff, her chief speechwriter, and that's where I sat next to the chief speechwriter. And beside us were her communications director, press sec, and deputy, deputy press sec. And this was at the time when Senator Clinton had just published her first book. So I came right in the thick of a release of her personal memoirs and also her politics. So I got to see so much incredible stuff. Um, and people always ask me, what is she really like? You know what I mean? Because she has this really bad polarizing perception in the public that she's cold and isolated, you know, icy and calculating. I can tell you honestly, she's one of the most warm, kind-hearted individuals I've ever met, yet she's also by far the most intelligent person that I have ever met in my life. And I've had the good fortune of working and interning for some amazing people, Governor Mark Warner, some other folks, um, but she takes it by far. So, I mean, that's one example of um, imagine how many back. imagine how many kids would be the calm um, intern now. It'd be like two foreign policy people and the fifty totally. people, fifty people <laughs> that'd be like, I want to do communications, totally, and PR, totally, totally. <laughs> so I'm always I'm very conscious of cousin Bob and what opportunities he afforded me because that really helped me on my path. Um, so I'm very much about paying it forward and kindness winning above everything else. So when you take Cousin Bob out to eat, who pays now? Uh, well, Cousin Bob has, has two kids at a very prestigious uh, all-girls high school. So Cousin Bob is still doing very well. Uh, so if, if we were to go out, Cousin Bob would certainly still pay for me, do which you, do is very much go, appreciated. Do like... Is it like one of those empty gestures? I got it. I got, I got it. I'm reaching for my, my wallet. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> um, so what happened to your dad's restaurant in Georgetown? Okay, so good question. I, I feel like when we met, he had just sold it, maybe. He, so he, uh, so going back, um, as you both may know, uh, based off of my Facebook post, I'm very close with my family, yeah. right? Very, very close. I see them, my mom and dad, every week. On Sunday, that's family day. It's sacred day. And uh, I actually talk to them once a night as well. On the way home uh, from work, walking back to our condo, that's when I call them, check up on them. And also, it's a good chance for me to kind of use my Vietnamese too. But all to say, I have older parents. My dad is, I believe, 84 years old. So my father could be my grandfather. So I'm very, I've always been aware of that ever since I was a child. And that life is sacred. Um, my dad retired, actually, see, in 1997. An aunt of mine, I call her an aunt, but she's really my first cousin because she's much older. Uh, she purchased it from my father, and she ran it uh, from then to about 2000 and, I don't know, 10 or so. Yeah, I feel like when we first met, um, 
that was one of those, you know, because Tokyo opened 2011. Yep. And then, um, um, so, um, I guess as we kind of wrap these things up, we always, we, we do, do center it back into food mm. and, Love um, food. and I think this is actually would be a little bit different and more interesting because I always, I always like to read and study a little bit. And it's something that I talk about, about, um, um, a lot in, in interviews and stuff about the Chinese story mm. being, being just an American story where dishes sure. like, um, um, chow mein and you know even stuff like general toes or orange chicken or yak mian like yep. these are american stories these are american dishes um and chinese food is um a part of american culture integrated it's, and it, every year people watch a christmas story and we watch it and everyone knows that the peking duck and and all of these things are just in a rich part of american history and then I watched, um, I was really obsessed with this show for a while called Hell on Wheels, and I really loved that show because um, almost every season was about the impact of the railroad on a different um, ethnic group or um, a religious group in the United States, whether it was the Mormons or Native Americans or Chinese um, uh, workers, um, and how that um, that creation of, you know, from the gold mine to connecting the coasts, how... Um, you know, Chinese history is such a, is almost day one history of U.S. history, right? And, um, and uh, say like a dish like strange flavor eggplant that we we just started yep. doing on Maketo. And I learned about this dish from Pichayong from his time in Spice Market because they have a version of sure. it on the Spice Market menu. Um, but you know how this dish was actually really created in um, San Francisco. Um, and um, then this food writer, Barbara Trope, documented this dish that she mm-hmm. loved so much where it was this amalgamation of you know eggplant and hummus and all these things that you know um white americans would love and then turned into this dish called strange flavor eggplant and and it slowly kind of died in the late 80s and i want to be a guy that brings it back up yeah um but i'm sure like when your father started this vietnamese restaurant he brings the vietnamese embassy chef and, and it's like I wonder what that feeling is like to open a restaurant and it's the first restaurant and you're like, no one knows this food. Yeah. And I'm going to open this business that's supposed to um, feed my family mm-hmm. and send my kids to school. And I'm in a city that I, I kind of know, but only because my wife knows it. Yeah. And this is why I'm here. And I think, Eric, the fact that he opened it up in the 70s in Georgetown During was the war. fucking insane. During the end of the war, right? Yeah. yeah that's pretty... I mean, I'm, I don't want to be crude, but that's that's pretty ballsy of my dad to yeah, just and, open on M Street and to not do a Chinese restaurant, not to do a Chinese restaurant. Because I think which, like the go-to yeah. would have been, okay, no one's really going to know whether I'm Vietnamese or Chinese, exactly. but I'm going to do a Vietnamese restaurant. Exactly. And then like, I mean, you can't. I can't even tell people. People still don't know what like trying to explain yeah. what pho is or. Yeah. Um, but anyways, like, yeah. what I, there's had to been a thing, a moment where your dad's like. This is the dish Americans are going to love. Right? That's yeah. what I think. Uh, I've, it's interesting. I've asked my dad that question before. Because I wanted to know for him, what was that access point that could introduce such a, a weird foreign cuisine to Americans? Like fish sauce? Like if anyone here has ever had fish sauce splash on them by accident onto the clothes, you're like, game over. I need to... Still. Still, right? Yeah. Like it's just so pungent, right? Yeah. And that makes up such a large part of Vietnamese cuisine. I think my, my dad responded, if I'm not mistaken, he said that 
customers really fell in love with his cuisine when they when they had uh, lemongrass chicken or pork or beef because it it was an extension of barbecue but positioned in a way that was super aromatic and friendly at the same time um, but also like he had he, it's funny he would tell me how countless times he would have people he raise their hand he'd walk over and he's like what's wrong I'm like oh like uh, there's something wrong with with his father that that that's that you gave us he's like what's wrong he's like well it tastes like soap my, my dad he knew like that's impossible because the the dishes were uh, were cleaned in a machine that used only chemicals. There was like no soap, right? And he realized it was the cilantro, mm-hmm. right? And so he, he and just educating, uh, educating his guests about things like that uh, for him was a powerful opportunity to open up a window into not only Vietnamese food, but other more, you know, f- interesting cuisine, not interesting, but other foreign cuisines as well. I mean, you, I think we saw the same thing with Korean. I talked to Maureen about that, Seda, like, like, dude, like in ninety, like in the late nineties, she never thought Korean would be at the forefront of the cuisine that it, you know where it, where it's at now. Like kimchi and like, I mean, I think all of us, whole food. I mean, like all of us, we at a certain point, like probably were very. I mean, I, I was very embarrassed about bringing friends home. Typical minority kids dilemma, right? Like yeah. you walk in, it smells, it stinks to this, you know, and you're just like, I'm so embarrassed. And take your shoes off too. Take, <laughs> <thank you. laughs> take Shoes, well, off, I mean, shoes off over if, there, please. If you're even allowed to have friends if over there. If you're even allowed house. to have friends Oh, yeah. Right. No. <laughs> um, no, I really appreciate it. I, I love kind of just in a moment like this where we get to be reminded of how patient our parents were. Totally. To be able to come to a country and, um, you know, if, if, if our generation still has our own obstacles, you know, if for Asian Americans specifically, you know, imagine yes. our parents giving up everything to come here to start over to have to introduce something simple as cilantro mm-hmm. and to have to patiently mm-hmm. just have to explain that over and over again i mean you're they're the game changers they open the door up 100 percent for all of us in in 1975 i'm just gonna guess that's let's just say that's when your dad opened your yeah. first restaurant where does he even get fish sauce <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> JD uh, Enterprise. Are they, smuggling, are, are they smuggling it through the, the embassy? <sighs> Maybe that's why he never told Maybe me. Maybe that's the question you need to ask him. I will. That's some contraband. <laughs> that's well, I'm glad that cilantro um, uh, still tasted like soap in the 70s. Because people, yeah. cause still people that, say I, that. I'm like... I had no, when you said that, it actually reminded me that somebody actually told me that cilantro tasted like soap. I'm like, what? And I don't get that, I didn't, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't if get it's that foreign to you, I guess, and that's your first taste of it. I've read that it's a genetic thing. Like, some people, it's just genetically built into them that they, they have that part of their taste buds. Interesting. Uh, yeah. I can see that. I don't Mis- get it. That's Mr. Jack Inslee, guys. Hey. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the Asian smell thing. Yeah, I mean, I got in an argument with somebody at school one time. I heard that she what said happened? something like Asian food smell. I was furious. Yeah, I'm, I'm But that's so crazy, like, right? Because I, like, now cor- it's like, I cornered her in a locker and I was like, I heard <laughs> that you said that Asian people house the smell. I said, where are you from? Where are you from? You would I do like, that. I don't think so. Tell him, Seda. <laughs> she would do that. <laughs> the, um, so, okay, so lemongrass, lemongrass, beef, chicken yeah. was kind of the thing. Okay, so. Yeah. Um, uh, just to give for the listeners, you know, lemongrass, beef, or chicken. This is kind of like you. It, it is a. It is a kind of a street snack or a play mm-hmm. on barbecue mm-hmm. skewers, etc. Um, but you, you're taking the meat, you're marinating it, and probably rock sugar, some mm-hmm. type of sugar, fish sauce, freshly ground lemongrass. Um, 
white pepper, yep. right? Yep. You marinate it, and then you're just grilling it, so you get this really nice caramelization. And it smells amazing too. It's, it ma- yeah, it's like the uh, it's like the uh, Jack Daniel ribs of Vietnamese yeah. food. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> it's <laughs> like it's top seller. Look at this guy. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like my top. Like for me, my my thing is you know Maketo fried chicken. That's the thing. That's the dish we create. That I'm like, oh, this is this is the gateway dish yep. to our restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so um, and also Eric, Genjuka, uh, uh-huh. which is the the um, how would I describe it? Uh, it is very similar to uh, tom yum soup. So okay. Tamarind and, yep. and other kind of like, you know, interesting flavors, but also very accessible. Um, and generally, it's, it's, a, it's a fish soup. And apparently, Americans who had never had Vietnamese food really loved it. They, they loved, really loved it. That, that's funny because I can't sell a sour soup to save my life. Really? Really? That's interesting. As as you've never tried, you've never done. I, I, is it? Yeah. Is it the one with the tomatoes and, and the it's pineapple? Got yes, pineapple. Thank you. My, that's my dad's favorite soup. That soup I can make because it's my dad's jam. There we uh, go. We we call it um, salam chu. Yes. Yes. Um, actually, we call it. Uh, it's it's actually kind of prerogative. It's a, it's actually kind of like a negative word um, that Cambodians sometimes mm. use is yuan, which means Vietnamese. Okay. Um, it's actually kind of a little bit of like a. A gray area where some Cambodians will are so it's it's a very casual term mm. towards Vietnamese. Got where it. if in Cambodia, um, is where I hear it least surprisingly, who actually have a lot more tension and acknowledgement of history with mm. um, Cambodians and Vietnamese, and they actually know not to use the word yuan. Yeah. But I notice a lot of Cambodians here in America tend to use that word That's casually. So That's it's very interesting. Funny. So they actually call that soup salamachu yuan. Um, What's a little translation if you could give it to me? Um, it's sour soup. Offended. Sour okay. Vietnamese soup. Sour okay. Vietnamese yeah. soup. Okay. But I, they say, <laughs> I, I, thought, I thought you were going to say sour, sour, stink, sour, stinky Vietnamese person. No, no, no it's sour <laughs> Vietnamese soup. But they say it in a way it's like, God damn it, I love this dish, but we didn't yeah, make but, it. But it's, yeah, but it's the that's the, um, that's it's, it's, it. you know, it's one of those soups that's like of the region. So yeah, for yeah sure. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, in very typical Asian nature, somebody's arguing about who made it first, totally. but it's all borrowed. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, there's another, um, my dad will actually call it Salamachu and, um, Manoa with, with mm. the pineapple because he puts pineapple Salamachu in Salamachu with the pineapple. Yeah. Nice. But, All right. So yeah. we're getting the, uh, SAG awards wrap up music slowly <laughs> creeping up and, um, I'm so happy that we did this. Thanks, man. Um, I'm so happy that you were willing to kind of put yourself out there and tell your story and your parents' story about, you know, um, how culture, um, your, your family's culture becomes so integrated into American culture that it becomes an American story and defines food in our region. So, Can I, I, can I say one last thing to you, Eric? Hmm. Um, I want to thank you both for, for having me. I was telling Maureen that... Um, I generally don't go out too much and tell my story personally because I, I don't find it, uh, number one, important nor exciting. Um, but I love sharing other people's stories. But I'm so thankful for you two because through all of your, your hard work, you've created communities and connecting points for people of all different skin colors and backgrounds to connect, to get to know each other, to become family. And I think especially right now in such a time where... Uh, it's such a polarizing environment. Um, being with family and friends at safe spaces is particularly important. So I just wanted to put that out there and give you all mad respect and love. It's so nice. Well, uh, I appreciate that. But, you know, I scammed him into this by saying I wanted him <laughs> to come onto the show so he could interview me so I could talk about how people just don't get 
what brothers and sisters. That's that's well, a different I, well, I told him when <laughs> he you, actually did uh, your story. No, well, when he walked in, I actually said, "Well, it's actually a podcast that is a marriage marriage counseling session, and you just the mediator." I was like, "Are you He's seriously? Like, okay. We're about to go live right now." <laughs> okay, okay, Jack, you can you can do the rollout music. As the rollout music starts, you have to tell us what your favorite, favorite snack is. Snack you're, is. Uh, you're, you're such a healthy yogi, so yeah, you yeah, have yeah. to tell me what is your, your nastiest gym? snack. Nastiest snack? Quick. Uh, nori, seaweed with this is so boring. tahini and ghee on it. <laughs> okay. I mean, at least there's sauce. <laughs> Thank you, Lou. That's almost as bad as your, Jack. Your uh, lightly air popped. Oh, uh, plain popcorn. Yeah. 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 Sad. Thank you, guys. I love you guys. I just wanted to give a good white answer. That's all. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at fullserviceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.